Welcome, welcome. It is Women of Strength Wednesday. You are listening to the Feedback Link Podcast. This is Julie and Megan is here with me today. And we have a really neat story for you today. It's been a while since we've had somebody on our podcast with a special scar, which is a scar that is different than the low vertical incision or the bikini cut scar that most parents have when it gets More horizontal, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Did I say vertical? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. That's okay. Different than the low horizontal incision that most parents get when they have a C-section. There's lots of different types of special scars. This type that we're talking about today is a classical incision, which means it's over the top of the uterus and it goes vertical down the belly and down the, or down the uterus rather. Um, sometimes it's vertical on the belly and sometimes it's not. It just depends. But I'm really excited because Brina, our guest today, is from Pennsylvania. And before, <laughs> I'm, I'm just actually just going to read her bio, what she wrote. But before I go into that and introduce her, I want to have Megan share a review of the week with us. Okay, this is from Gabby. And she's on Apple Podcasts. And her subject is Hopeful for a VBAC. She says, I feel so lucky to have the time and space each evening after my littles have gone to bed to listen to the meaningful and beautiful birth stories on the VBAC link. I am hopeful for a VBAC in early September after having a traumatic birth story with my first child. Whatever this new story holds, I will be able to handle it better because I am educated myself with this podcast. Thank you for sharing these stories with us all. And I'm assuming that was, let's see, that was July 4th of last year. So she has had her baby by now. So are we going to stalk have, people? Yeah, I was going to say, we'll either have to go stalk her on the VVAC link community <laughs> on our Facebook. And if you're not on that, definitely tune into that on Facebook. Just search the VVAC link community, answer the questions, um, and we will make sure to get you in there. It's an amazing community. And yeah, Gabby, if you are still listening, um, email us. We would love to hear how things went. And yeah, I'm going to turn the time back over to you, Julie. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. All right, here we go. Brina is really, really incredible. Her story is really awesome. And I'm just going to read her a little bio for you because I don't think I could say it better myself. She says, my name is Brina and I'm a wife and stay-at-home mom of two girls. In April of 2018, my first daughter was delivered at just 24 weeks due to severe preeclampsia via classical cesarean. I'm just going to do a little pause there for a minute. So she has a, had a preterm cesarean and it's a classical incision with a special scar. So this is kind of a big deal. We have a blog about um, birth after premature cesarean and also about special scars, but like she, she has both of these, right? So she says, I was told I would never be allowed to carry past 36 weeks and that I would need repeat cesareans for all future babies 
or I would have a uterine rupture due to the classical incision I had been given. After much searching, I discovered the Brewer's Diet for preeclampsia and the Special Scars Special Horp Organization, both of which were answers to my prayers. In August of 2020, after a healthy full-term pregnancy, I had a lovely home birth after classical cesarean with wonderful Amish midwives. Okay, I like want to pick apart all of these things and talk about them. But instead of doing that and taking up the whole time, I am going to turn the time over to Brina and let her share her wonderful story because this is like a must listen, I think, for everybody because it covers so many things. And then after she's done sharing her story, we are going to pick something to talk about. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, my name is Brina and I've been married to my husband, Michael, for almost four years. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two beautiful girls, and we live near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In November of 2017, I got pregnant with my first baby. I was seeing midwives at a birth center in Pittsburgh for prenatal care and was planning to have an unmedicated birth at the center. But I had a really difficult pregnancy from the start and was dealing with severe morning sickness, like vomiting every day, several times a day. It was really hard for me to eat due to that. And I think that my empty stomach was only making me sicker, but I didn't realize it at the time. As a result, I wasn't being well nourished. So that was a really bad start. When my morning sickness didn't go away by the second trimester, I expressed to the midwives my symptoms, which were severe nausea, persistent, debilitating migraines, and swelling. The midwives, they just dismissed my symptoms as common side effects of pregnancy, and they blamed the migraines on hormonal changes. So they told me to take Tylenol along with caffeinated coffee for the migraines, and they assured me that the nausea would probably ease up soon. But um, by mid-April, I had a prenatal visit, which included routine testing, for which I was instructed to fast. So when I got to that appointment, I was feeling really hungry, tired, and weak. When the midwife took my blood pressure, she looked shocked and asked if I was feeling all right. And I remember being sort of frustrated and saying, no, I really don't feel well, which is what I've been trying to tell you for weeks. But they had acted like it was all normal and no big deal. I kind of just thought, okay, I guess this is how pregnancy is for everyone, (laughs) is my first pregnancy. So... After taking my blood pressure a few more times, it was still super high and was what they considered to be within the hypertensive crisis zone. So it was 180 over 110. After a quick urine dip test, they concluded that I needed to go immediately to the hospital for some additional tests and monitoring. And that's how it was put to me. So I really didn't understand the fullness of the situation or realize how serious it was. Um, I kind of imagined that I'd just go in for a quick ultrasound or blood test or something and be home by that evening. But obviously, that wasn't the case. When I arrived at the hospital, they told me they were surprised I hadn't already had a stroke and said I needed to go to the ICU immediately. Oh, scary. Um, Yeah. (laughs) They told me I had to be prepared for an emergency C-section at any moment and that I would not be leaving that hospital still pregnant. So it was extremely scary to have all that just sort of thrown at me out of the blue. Um, They told me that I had severe preeclampsia for which there was no known cause or cure and that the only possible way to save mine and my baby's life was to deliver as soon as possible. 
So they said there was this fine balance between giving my baby as much time to develop as possible and also not holding off so long that my body would begin to shut down from the preeclampsia. So I was admitted to the hospital on a Tuesday, and my daughter was born on a Friday afternoon. So I spent four days in the hospital leading up to the C-section. Um, by Friday afternoon, we were told that delivery could no longer be held off and that my daughter's best chance was for me to have a C-section immediately. I expressed to them my wish to give birth vaginally, but I was told that she may not survive a vaginal birth. So it was their recommendation that we proceed with a C-section. They explained to me that given the extreme prematurity of my pregnancy, they would probably have to do a classical C-section so as not to risk hitting the major uterine arteries on my underdeveloped lower segment. So they said that would mean a vertical incision on the upper portion of my uterus, which came with more risks and would make it impossible for me to ever deliver vaginally for future pregnancies. Obviously, the idea was pretty horrifying to me, not only because surgery was like my worst fear, but also because I had really wanted an unmedicated natural birth. And I was crushed at the prospect of never, ever getting to experience that. So I was super hesitant after hearing that, and my mind was sort of reeling. And then they told me that if I didn't consent to the C-section right then and there, they would have to do one anyway. But in that case, there would be no time to give me an epidural, so I would be put under general, which I was terrified of, and also that they would definitely have to give me a classical. But that if I consented now, they would have more time to take it slow and maybe do the low transverse after all. So looking back, there was definitely a lot of pressure, and I wasn't really in my right mind because of all the drugs they had me on. It was honestly a struggle even to keep my eyes open. So I asked that my husband and I be left alone so we could think about what to do. Um, I was a young 20-year-old first-time mom and was trusting that these experts knew best. So, and obviously, I mean, I would have cut off my limbs if they told me it was necessary to save my baby's life. So I was willing to do anything they said. So our daughter, Aurora, was born at 24 weeks, weighing just one pound, eight ounces, and measuring 12 inches from head to heel. Um, we only got to see her for a brief moment before she was whisked off to the NICU. So there was no immediate skin to skin whatsoever. I couldn't see her for probably the first 12 hours. And they didn't let me hold her for over two weeks. And even after that, it was often a fight with the NICU. So I often felt really alone trying to be her advocate during that time. She had a lot to overcome in the NICU. And we ultimately spent 104 days there. So she was born in April, and we didn't get to take her home until August. When we finally did leave, a respiratory therapist who had been there at the beginning told me he hadn't thought she was going to live for more than a few days. But she's two now and has absolutely no health problems at all, which is really remarkable mm, for a baby born awesome. so premature. Yeah. yeah. She's so smart and beautiful and healthy, and we're so, so proud of her and just so thankful to God for getting us through such a challenging time. I was also able to exclusively breastfeed her, which I had been told wouldn't be possible with a micropreemie, and I was actually laughed at when I let the NICU know I was staying for the time so I could be with her and breastfeed her. So I just want to encourage other NICU moms to fight for and advocate for their babies in the NICU. 
I want to mention that during the four days leading up to the C-section, I was confined to a bed with IVs and constant monitoring, and I was denied all food and drink during that time. I was absolutely starving and just so thirsty, but was told that it was too dangerous for me to eat in case I needed to suddenly rush in and do a C-section, in which case my stomach would need to be empty. Of course, it was really frustrating to try and go along with that reasoning when the days kept ticking by and this imminent C-section just wasn't happening and all the while I was starving and just getting weaker and weaker. Um, I was also given magnesium sulfate through my IVs to prevent convulsions and oh. diuretics to flush fluid out of my lungs. Oh my but gosh, that is yucky. the worst. Yeah. So, so awful. I've since learned that diuretics are contraindicated during pregnancy due to their ability to deplete blood volume expansion and preeclampsia, which of course was the entire reason I was there in the first place. So essentially they gave me a drug that accelerated the problem and it was within just hours of receiving the diuretic that they told me the C-section could no longer be put off and it was the only That way makes to so life. much sense. Like I had yeah. preeclampsia with my first and I had the magnesium sulfate drip during labor and my preeclampsia got way worse the first week after oh. he was born than it had been my entire pregnancy. I was swollen up like the Michelin man or whatever you call it, Marshall, like, like, like everything, like all the way up from my feet to my legs was swollen up like balloon. And, it, and look at, listen to that. I'm just reading about the Brewer's Diary and I'm super intrigued. So we're going to talk about that when you're done, but yeah. I'm not going to yeah. keep, I'm going to let you go on with your story now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to pack it all in and not be a chatterbox the whole time, but <laughs> thank you for giving me the time to, um, yeah, so that was terrible. And I, like, again, I was a first time mom and I was just like, okay, I'm at the hospital. They're supposed to help me. They obviously know more than I do. So I'm just going to trust them. What I'm asked if I think my C section was unnecessary, I hesitate to answer because the C section itself may have been necessary at that point, but only because of the improper care I received leading up to it. I was admitted into the hospital for preeclampsia symptoms, given high doses of magnesium sulfate, of which a side effect is breathing difficulties. Then I was given a diuretic for problems related to breathing difficulties, and I was then given a C-section for severe preeclampsia symptoms, which the diuretic is known to exasperate. So this is a quote, I'm gonna read it real quick, from the documentary, The Business of Being Born, which I think is a really great thing everyone should watch, but um, it kind of sums up how I feel about my experience. It says, Step-by-step, step, one intervention leads to a series of interventions, and then that result is the mother finally ends up with a cesarean, and everybody says, thank God we were able to do all those interventions and save your baby. But the fact of the matter is, if they hadn't started the cascade of interventions in the first place, none of that would have been necessary. So, obviously, I was extremely sick when I arrived at the hospital, and something did need to be done for me, but based on the studying I've since done regarding the decades of research on preeclampsia, I believe that ensuring I received proper nutrition should have been the first order of business that day instead of what did happen, which unfortunately was the opposite. My C-section re recovery was pretty brutal. I had never experienced pain like that, and I haven't since. The hours immediately after the surgery consisted of me going into shock and having persistent vomiting and dry heaving that I couldn't get under control which was pretty excruciating since they had just been freshly stitched up. It took a while, like probably weeks, for me to be able to stand and walk without like wincing in pain. So it was not an easy recovery. 
When I was counseled in the ICU after the C-section, I was told that I had indeed been given a classical incision after all, which meant I would now need repeat C-sections at 36 weeks for all future deliveries, and that under no circumstances would I ever be allowed to labor because the risk of uterine rupture was just too great for me. And I was told this by doctors who claimed to be very VBAC supportive. They just told me that I was not a candidate because I had a classical scar. So the way they talked made me feel like I had been given this crazy, outdated procedure and was now forever damaged. So that was really hard to work through. But it also got me thinking about how if this procedure was in fact so outdated, then what about the women who had had VBACs in the early and mid-1900s? I thought they had to have existed, and wouldn't that mean that someone somewhere must have done it? Another thing they told me upon discharge was that it was likely I would get preeclampsia again and there was nothing that could really be done since there was no known cause or cure other than delivery. So now I was pretty terrified of getting pregnant again, but at that time, I just had to focus on my daughter who was in critical condition in the NICU. Uh, when we got home from the NICU, I looked everywhere and I couldn't find any stories of anyone who had had a back with a classical scar. So that was pretty discouraging. Everyone had the low transverse scar, and everything I came across just said what I had been told before, which was that classical scars could never, ever VBAC. Basically, it seemed to be a unanimous consensus that VBACs can and do happen. However, I was just that one exception. Eventually, I think after searching, like, keyword classical VBAC or something, I came across the book online called Silent Knife. Um, I hadn't even read it yet, and I didn't know what it had to say about classical scars, but I thought, what the heck, I'll see if I can find this author on Facebook. I did find her, and she ended up being a practicing midwife in Boston, actually the midwife who coined the term VBAC. I ended up sending a message to her, sort of asking if she had ever known anyone to have a VBAC with a classical scar. She got back to me and told me that, yes, many women with my kind of scar go on to have lovely, normal, natural births. And I just had to like reread her message a couple of times. I was in shock. I actually cried because it was the first time I'd ever heard a yes from a birth worker like that. I was like, did she understand my question? Is this really what she's saying to me? She was so wonderful and was willing to speak with me over the phone. And she connected me to a couple sort of underground or traditional midwives over the country who were maybe closer to me or maybe willing to travel to me when I did decide to get pregnant again. Um, it was around that time I also found the Special Scar Special Hope organization, which was extremely helpful to me. I no longer felt like this freak who was the only person since 1950 to have been given a scar. I now could connect with thousands of other women all over the world who were like me and had all been told the same thing, that we couldn't be back. Yet many of them had gone on to have VBAC, so I was just so thrilled and so encouraged to get to talk with them and hear their stories. Of course, it was around that time I also stumbled upon the VBAC link, which was just another amazing resource for me. And I was so encouraged by these other women's stories, and I couldn't believe how much I was able to relate to them. I listened to it like every day as I made dinner or folded laundry. So being on the other side of it like this is just really so surreal. I especially enjoyed the Special Scars episodes and was so grateful to you guys for including Special Scars and not leaving us out due to the sort of negative stigma that surrounds it. I want to take a brief moment to hopefully sort of sum up what I was referring to earlier when I spoke of the decades of research on preeclampsia. So one of the things I came across when searching for answers about preeclampsia is the Brewer diet. 
I don't like to refer to it as a diet because really it's just a nutritional outline to ensure your body is well supported for pregnancy. The creator of the diet, Dr. Tom Brewer, was an obstetrician who in the late 1960s and early 70s formulated the nutritional guideline based on his findings as well as decades of research from other doctors. Of the some 7,000 pregnant women whose care Dr. Brewer oversaw, only 0.5% ever presented with mild symptoms of preeclampsia. And he eradicated preeclampsia in populations where it had previously been upwards of 40%, which is really remarkable. I strongly encourage everyone to look into the diet. Once you understand the science behind the physiology of pregnancy, it becomes obvious why the Brewer diet has been so successful. I've run into a few people who have insisted that preeclampsia can't be prevented or reversed with diet since it hasn't been accepted by mainstream medicine. This is largely due to the fact that Dr. Brewer found it unethical to conduct a placebo study. He was also a champion for racial equality, which sadly I believe played a part in his work being sort of snubbed and overlooked, particularly because of the social climate of his day. I've always been puzzled by those who claim that diet has nothing to do with preeclampsia. Why would anyone argue the fact that a healthy diet promotes health? And why would you be so eager to dismiss the theory when the alternative is basically just accepting the fate? What I mean by that is that currently mainstream medicine has no answers and says there is no cure for preeclampsia. Yet it's among the most common complications of pregnancy, afflicting thousands of mothers and babies annually. The unfortunate truth is no one makes money from a healthy person, which I unfortunately personally believe is one of the driving factors why the Brewer diet is ignored. But nevertheless, I encourage everyone to at the very least look into it and see what it's about. Dr. Brewer wrote several books and there's a free website and a Facebook group called Dr. Brewer Pregnancy Nutrition that was incredibly helpful to me. Without the Brewer diet and the support I received from the ladies in that group, my VBAC would not have been possible. So it was really important to me to just take a minute to talk about that. Um, after I had studied so much and been blessed with all this support and information surrounding preeclampsia and VBAC, I began to kind of get to the source of my fears regarding another pregnancy. I realized I was letting this fear dictate my life since my husband and I knew we wanted a family and we believe children are a blessing and a reward from God. So after a lot of prayer, my husband and I felt convicted to just entrust our family planning to God. And at that point, I felt like I at least sort of had a rough game plan as to how a second pregnancy would look going forward. I happened to get pregnant again in November of 2019. So my due date was within days of when my first one had been. It was incredibly healing for me to be able to continue to carry that pregnancy full term and sort of pass those landmarks from two years before. I planned to follow the Brewer diet, which I did, and I fully believe is the reason I was able to have a successful full-term second pregnancy completely free of preeclampsia. I did have some brutal morning sickness again, but this time I knew how to manage it much better by eating small, healthy snacks and not really allowing my stomach to get empty, and I think that helped me a lot. I initially thought I would have an unassisted birth because no hospitals were willing to let me be back on a classical scar, and I honestly, I felt pretty let down by those I had put my trust in the first time, so I didn't really want to give birth in a hospital anyway. I did have contacts to those midwives in other states that I mentioned before, but honestly, I knew I wanted to labor alone and undisturbed for the most part, so it felt kind of silly to me to hire a midwife 
from a few states away and go through the whole process of having her stay with us just to make her wait in another room while I labored. So ultimately, I decided to contact the Amish. I've gone to Amish country for festivals and stuff since I was a kid. And I thought, okay, the Amish must be having home birth. So who was helping them? I sort of had this crazy idea to ask my friend if she could give me the address for one of the Amish guys who had worked on her house. I sort of thought, what did I really have to lose by writing a letter to his wife and asking her who her midwife is? So that's what I did. And this Amish family, they were just so kind and went out of their way to connect me with the Amish midwife, who had been a midwife for 40-some years and attended hundreds of births a year, upwards of 100 births a year. So she had a lot of experience. She was a gem, and I was so fortunate. That midwife worked with a non-Amish doula, who was also a midwife learning and working with the Amish community. So the Amish family told me that, yes, the midwives were willing to assist a Yankee woman. That's what they call us, non-Amish. And they gave me the doula's phone number. So I gave her a call, and I remember hearing it ringing and thinking, this is so dumb. She's going to hang up on me when I tell her I have a classical scar. Like, why am I even bothering? But uh, to my surprise, she didn't hang up on me. She actually asked when would be good for us to meet in person. She also let me know that there was an Amish woman in their community who had had three home births after an inverted T incision and would be willing to meet with me as well as offer some encouragement and support. That was the first time I actually met another person in real life, not online, who had a special scar. So that meant a lot to me. It was really just like crazy how it worked out. It, it felt really meant to be. I felt so secure and comforted with them whenever I met them. I love that. <laughs> they were so respectful of my wishes throughout the whole pregnancy as well as the birth. They were hands-off when I wanted them to be and hands-on when I needed them to be. I didn't want any ultrasounds or testing at all and they were okay with that. I took my own blood pressure and weight and our prenatal visits were super laid back just in my living room. It was amazing. I really couldn't have asked for anything better. So when I was 38 weeks and two days, I went into labor at about noon on a Saturday. You know what they say about a full moon, and it actually was a full moon that weekend. And my birth was one of four or five that my midwives attended that weekend. Anyway, I didn't recognize it as real labor at first. I just thought it could be Braxton Hicks or something. And I didn't take it too seriously until bedtime when I was literally on my bed, like, moaning. And I had to acknowledge, okay, maybe this is real. Uh, about that time, I went to the bathroom and realized I was losing my mucus plug. So I let my Jola know what was going on. And it was the middle of the night at that point. I told her I wanted to labor undisturbed anyway, so they didn't have to bother coming just yet. Um, my contractions were mainly felt in my lower back and sort of wrapped around. So what I really had for the most part was back labor. So all this time, I was just having contractions like three to four minutes apart and was just laying in my bed trying to relax my body as much as possible and even sleep in between contractions when I could. At that point, everything I had learned from hypnobirthing became really valuable and helpful to me. My husband pressed a heating pad into my lower back each time I'd have a contraction and that counter pressure is really what got me through. Um, I also alternated from the bed to the shower and would run the hot water on my back. So that was how I spent most of the night. And my contractions were like three to four minutes apart for most of that time. Eventually, I could tell I was entering transition because I was getting chills and 
like shaky legs and it was getting somewhat harder for me to work through my contractions. So I told my doula that I'd like for them to come at that point. So I think it was about 5 a.m. by the time they arrived at my house and there were three of them. So I had the older Amish midwife who I first mentioned, the non-Amish doula and midwife, and the Amish woman who had three home births on her inverted T-scar because she had offered to attend my birth and I was really happy to take her up on it. Her additional support and encouragement just meant so much to me and I, I knew that she really got it. Like she knew what it was like because she herself had done it. And she's also my sister in Christ. They all are. So the whole thing, it was just such a blessing. Um, when they arrived, they offered to check my cervix to see how far dilated I was, which I did want, but I was also nervous that I would get discouraged if it was a lower number and then have a harder time. So I told her I wanted her to check, but not to tell me the number. She checked and told me she really didn't think I was going to be disappointed. So would I like her to tell me? And I said yes. And she told me I was nine centimeters and that my cervix was paper thin. So uh, she said she could feel the baby's head sort of under the bag of waters. And she offered to break my waters if that's what I wanted because the pressure of the baby's head made me feel a little more pushy than I was. I, I just really didn't want any interventions at all, though. So I opted to just labor some more and let my body do its own thing. So I sent them downstairs. And it was just my husband and I again since our two-year-old had been sleeping this whole time. My midwives, they did my dishes and made breakfast. And it's funny because, like, that's just what I love about home birth, just how laid back and normal it is. So eventually, after laboring in bed some more, I was laying on my side and my husband was doing the counter pressure with the heating pad. And I was working through a contraction and I heard a loud pop and a splash because my waters had broken. And I did throw up right after that just because of the rush of hormones. But after that, I felt so much better. And I was just really glad that I had waited for it to happen on its own because that's really what I wanted. So at that point, I was feeling like I could push. And I ultimately pushed for a good two hours. I pushed on the bed and the shower, leaning on my husband, leaning on my doula, and the yoga ball and the toilet and everything. But Eventually, I was just so exhausted that I crawled back into bed, and I was kind of on my side, kind of on my back, and one of them suggested I try using a towel to play tug of war to help direct my pushes. I was just so tired from being up all night and pushing for so long, and I'd been laboring for 21 hours at that point, so the tug of war trick really worked for me, and it was probably within like minutes that she was born. We named her Athena, and she weighed 9 pounds, 4 ounces, and was 21 inches long. So her size was such a lovely surprise, especially considering that she was born at 38 and 3. And my midwife said, just imagine how much more she would have weighed had she come out any later. But ultimately, it was just a really amazing experience. She was born on a Sunday morning. And we just checked the time on my husband's watch. Like, it was just so laid back and exactly how I'd hoped it would be, but probably better than I'd hoped it would be. And um, after it happened, I just lay there thinking, I can't believe this actually happened. I can't believe I really did it. You know, after being told you can't do something so many times, to that, that moment was just, I felt amazing. I was able to pull her up to my chest for skin to skin immediately, and I was able to breastfeed right away. And they left us alone, and we put off the weighing and measuring and everything for a little while because I just really wanted that golden hour to be undisturbed, and I wanted to do delayed cord clamping. 
Um, my older daughter was able to come meet her right away because she happened to wake up right after she was born, which was perfect, perfect timing. I didn't have any tears, which I was pretty grateful for with an over nine pound baby. I was pretty sore from all that pushing, but honestly, my postpartum was a breeze. And just like a couple days later, I was walking her down the street to show her off to my neighbor. So I felt pretty good. It was just an amazing experience. And I'm so grateful for the support I had and the opportunity to have such a restorative experience. I told myself that if I ever got to have a VBAC, I was going to make a big deal about it. So no one else would have such a hard time finding answers like I did. So I just really appreciate this opportunity to share more than you know. And I thank you guys for all you do. It really does make a difference. It definitely, definitely did for me listening to all those episodes. Um, I'm almost done, but I did write down some key takeaways that I wanted to kind of sum up for the listeners, if that's okay. The first one is, your body was carefully designed by a creator who loves you. He didn't forget anything or leave anything out. Bodies heal, and a scar on your uterus does not mean you are any less capable than the next woman of doing what your body was designed to do. Along those lines, something that I think maybe subconsciously made an impact on me was that when I was a teenager, I got to witness one of my younger brothers be born in the car on the way to the birth center. And I think just that experience kind of showed me how when left alone, birth really is for the most part simple and straightforward. I think I took from one of your older episodes was the idea that if I were to do nothing and not schedule a repeat C-section like they were telling me I had to do, then my body would instinctively know what to do and would give birth vaginally. Obviously, uterine rupture, it does happen and it should be taken seriously, but so should the risk of multiple cesareans and that should always be an individual choice, not one for your doctor to make for you. The other thing that I had was know what you want and fight for it. Find a provider who will meet your needs and respect your authority and choices, even if it means thinking outside the box, like writing a letter to the Amish. You don't need anyone's permission to use your own vagina. I also wrote an article that's in issue 47 of Natural Mother Magazine. If anyone is interested in reading some things I may not have covered on this episode, but that was all the bullet points I had written down to share. So thank you for letting me rattle on that entire time. No, we love it. You have lots of good information in that episode. I feel like we almost don't have to do any educational piece, but I kind of want to talk about something that we don't talk about a lot on our podcast. But before I get into that, I want to let you know that we have a blog about premature or VBAC after premature cesarean and about special scars that you can find by going to our website, thevbacklink.com slash blog, and just in the search bar, typing those terms in, and it will pull the blogs right up, and it will give you all the information you want to know. But I want to talk about diet. Diet during pregnancy. We have one podcast about pregnancy nutrition. We have a blog about pregnancy nutrition, and normally Megan's the nutrition slash exercise guru of the bunch, but while... But I'm going to kind of take over this time on that topic because I was reading some really interesting things about the brewer's diet while Brina was sharing her story with us. So I wanted to go through and just talk about a, a few fun little statistics that I found, and we will cite these in the show notes. Um, the first one is from the website drbrewerpregnancydiet.com. 
And it's just, there's a tab called preeclampsia on the left-hand side. You can click that tab and it, and it talks all about the brewer diet and related to preeclampsia. And there's a lot of like content taken from books on the subject and studies and things like that. And a lot of the information is kind of outdated, but nutritional needs, I mean, are still pretty consistent, I think, across the board. And there's a, there's also a lot of up-to-date information in there as well. But I wanted to point out a couple things. So first of all, we know that the medical system is more likely to recommend prescription medications and medical treatments to prevent and treat things than they are to recommend food to treat things. But on this website, drbrewerpregnancydiet.com, on the left-hand side, click preeclampsia, is really, really interesting because, like I was saying before, the medical system will recommend prescription drugs. They'll recommend early delivery. They'll recommend all sorts of medicalized things to take care of whatever it is that we're dealing with. But the medical system is not designed in a way to set up proper nutrition, to help heal your body with food, and to help you learn how to eat better and and do better so that your pregnancy can avoid these things in the first place. It's just not designed that way. It would kind of hurt itself by preventing the things that it's being paid to treat. Not that I'm against the medical system because I'm very grateful for when it's needed, but I think there needs to be a really good balance there between treating your body naturally and then using the medical system when we need to. And it's really funny because the medical system or scientists or doctors generally claim that we don't know what causes preeclampsia. We think it might have something to do with when the placenta is developing, but we can't really pinpoint a cause. But Dr. Tom Brewer, the obstetrician, has pretty good logic about what causes preeclampsia. I'm just going to read a quote here from him on that website I was just telling you about. He says, Low blood volume, which is the inevitable result of dehydration and the use of diuretics, contributes directly to eclampsia, premature birth, and low birth weight. And now there's a whole group of hypertension drugs that have come out in the last 10 to 15 years. These drugs just ravage women. They cause direct damage to all of the cells in the mother's body, particularly to the liver, a little to the kidneys, and then to the placenta and fetus. And it's really interesting because like you were saying earlier, diuretics and like the um, excessive doses of magnesium and things like that prevent the body from being efficient in, in the blood flow and inhibits the blood getting to the fetus, to the uh, placenta and to the uterus, which are really critical for helping baby grow, right? And it's really interesting in here because up here he says, like, I was just reading on this website in the, let's see, where did, where did it go? Um, the cause of preeclampsia was discovered in the 1950s and 1960s. And I read that and I was like, wait a minute, like doctors don't know what causes preeclampsia, right? But listen to this. Preeclampsia is caused by abnormal blood volume, which is caused by malnutrition or food deficiency. Now, listen, it might seem strange to you. Like with me, I'm like, I just definitely not starving myself when I was pregnant with my first baby because I had preeclampsia with my first. And I was definitely like eating lots of food, but I was working really hard and I would like eat a salad for lunch thinking I was being healthy, right? But when you deprive your body of the critical 
nutrients that it needs. It doesn't matter what you're eating, but if you're not eating food with that are rich in nutrient dense, then you are malnourished. And when you're not drinking enough water, your blood volume that can't increase the way that it needs to in order to effectively and healthily support you, a healthy placenta and a healthy baby. So it's really interesting because it talks about um, how this particular diet that he recommends following really helps the blood volume expansion. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of like sciencey stuff in here that can go on, but basically eating a higher high protein diet with lots of salt helps the body create the blood volume that it needs to sustain the pregnancy, which essentially prevents preeclampsia and other blood related issues. And, and I definitely need to learn more about it. And I, and I encourage you to read more about it too, but it shows some really interesting statistics here where normally we think like, oh, salt is bad, salt is bad, salt is bad. But in pregnancy, salt is necessary for us to remain hydrated. And again, for our circulatory system and for our overall well-being. And they compare like studies of people that were on a high salt diet versus a low salt diet. And the outcomes are way better on the high salt diet. Instances of preeclampsia were 37 per 1,000 versus um, in the high salt diet versus a low salt diet had 97 in 1,000 cases. So three times more likely to get preeclampsia, according to the study, when you eat a low salt diet. Isn't that interesting? It also goes on to compare perinatal deaths, C-sections, and placental abruption, which are all significantly higher in the low salt diet group. But the brewer's diet is not just about drinking lots of water, eating protein, and increasing your salt intake, but there's a, a, some really cool things that they recommend eating and including like eggs, milk, um, meat and fish every day, dark green and leafy vegetables, lots of vitamin C sources, nice healthy grains, servings of healthy fats and oils and vitamin A are all things that they uh, that he recommends in the brewer's diet. Now, the website, Dr. Brewer's website was is called the Blue Ribbon Baby Pages, but that website has been archived now. So it's not like an active website, but you can still find it if you search Blue Ribbon Baby Pages. And that website is directly authored by him. And there's lots of spreadsheets and checklists and things like that if you want to avoid that diet. Because what that diet does is it helps your body increase the blood volume that it needs to sustain a healthy pregnancy. And now my mind is like spinning in all of these different ways because there were things I did in my second pregnancy to avoid getting preeclampsia. And a lot of it, I, I didn't follow the brewer diet as described here, but a lot of it was like following these recommendations, you know, plenty of water, making sure I'm staying hydrated, not limiting my salt intake, eating lots of protein, especially eggs. I ate eggs like crazy when I was pregnant with my second. And it's just really, really interesting. And I, and I know that, trust me, I was just, I trust me, I was just sitting here eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream when we were recording our last episode. So I'm definitely not the epitome of health. And so it can feel overwhelming. I know, especially when you're pregnant to like, oh my gosh, do I really have to make all these diet changes? Am I going to ruin my baby if I, if I don't follow this very strict diet or how much water do I need to eat or how much protein do I need to eat? It's so easy to get overwhelmed, right? because I know that I do and I'm not even pregnant right now. But this is the thing. If 
the Brewer diet is, is a nice healthy diet. It goes right along with the guidelines that are recommended to just maintain health overall. It follows what ACOG's recommendations are for a healthy pregnancy. It just expands on that a little bit more. And there's some really solid evidence to support following this diet drastically improves birth outcomes. But you don't have to go making all of these big changes. You don't have to go from eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's a day. No, I don't need a pint a day. <laughs> but um, eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream and to, to completely 180, never eating anything with sugar in it ever again. Just making small changes in your diet, incorporating more nutrient-rich foods like healthy meat, healthy fats, lots of green leafy vegetables, and vitamin A and vitamin C supplements are going to do better. So focus on adding things into your diet more than you focus on taking things out. It would be my advice from a not-so-healthy mom to maybe other not-so-healthy moms right now. <laughs> Megan, what would you add? Are you completely yeah, um, no. embarrassed by my nutritional advice? <laughs> no, no. I think it's so important, you know, like something too, like this is not like in conjunction with preeclampsia. It's in conjunction with how we as women in the world sometimes have our minds just go because like being skinny and not getting too much weight and bouncing back and being back in our jeans and walk, you know what I mean? Like there's so much pressure and a lot of things. So when it comes to V back, I've personally had clients be like, well, my baby was so big last time and I was overweight. So I better not eat. And so I had a client specifically one client that literally starved herself her entire pregnancy because she said, I can't have a big baby because if I have a big baby, I won't have a feedback and then they won't let me. And if they think that my baby's big, then I won't. And then if I gain too much weight, they'll just tell me that I'm fat and then I can't have a C-section. And I'm just like, oh, and did she have, have high blood pressure or preeclampsia or gestational diabetes? So the crazy thing, she actually did have a repeat cesarean. Um, her body kind of tapped out um, mm. because it wasn't fueled. And so it's not even just like, I mean, it, it's just in general, like we need to fuel our bodies, but in life, because there's so much pressure to be quote unquote skinny and all of these things, right? Like, and not gain too much weight. We cut, like you were saying, we cut out our nutrients that are insanely needed. And so if we're cutting it out before we even get pregnant, because a lot of people are like, oh, I want to lose this weight before I get pregnant. And then they get pregnant. And then they're like cutting out these things and not adding those necessary things like the brewer's diet talks about. It's important to, to understand how it can truly impact you, your baby, your outcome, et cetera. And yeah, like we don't, we don't know the exact cause of preeclampsia, but there are things that like, you know, we were going over and was shared in this story. Like there are things that we can do to help that have been proven, you know, to help. And so why not do these things and pay attention to these things? So I just think it's so important in general, like pregnancy, not pregnant, preeclampsia, diabetes, anything, just fuel your body because your body gives you so much. And we are asking so much of our bodies every day to perform and if we cut what it needs, it's not fair to ask that. Does that make sense? Like, is that silly yeah. to say? Well, 
I just think like I have anxiety. Everybody knows that by now. I have a very anxious mind. And I just think of like when my mind gets anxious, it's because there's things going on that are influencing it, right? And I I just kind of liken, liken that to like the not feeding your body is like those outside things influencing my anxious mind. Like not feeling your body does not allow your body to perform well. It doesn't allow effect it to function effectively. Just like your mind with like my mind with my anxiety. When I, my anxiety is high, like the whole world is falling apart. It doesn't even matter if nothing is a big deal, but everything feels like a big deal. And so when you're depriving your body of those nutrients, even the smallest thing your body is working hard to do feel like a big deal to it and it can exhaust it and it can make it harder for it to do normal things when it's most important thing to do is growing your baby. Yeah. And I just, I love, you know, that Bruno was talking about this, like, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, like, check it out, just check it out. It doesn't do you any harm to check it out. Yeah. You can just Google the brewer diet. Um, it's brewer there. I know we say brewers because I, know, I like it to be, I like to be possessive, yeast. but it's by Tom Brewer. And it's cause I think in my head, I think of brewer's yeast. So I say, yeah. Brewer. <laughs> it's the brewer, the brewer diet b-r-e-w-e-r so take a look at that a lot and lots of good it's just a really good looks like a really good healthy diet so good thing to do take care yeah. of your body keep nourishing those babies and improve your chances of lots of different birth outcomes would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.